There we go. Anything funny you want to say for the beginning? <laughs> like your fucking hat. That's pretty funny. I keep, it actually looks like you've got uh, like a, a little hairband thing on. Oh, yeah? Yeah. It's... I keep thinking you've got a hairband. It's like, you know, when you when like people with long hair come out of the shower and they have like a hairband thing on. That's what it looks like right now. How many times are you standing outside other people's showers waiting for them to come out with long hair? I mean, I might be on a couple of... Uh, no fly list. Couple of pl police registers. It's <laughs> <coughs> <coughs> the least of your worries. <laughs> right. <laughs> on that note... Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of Not Another Whiskey Podcast, a show where it's not just the edits that are half cut, it's also your host. Hey. hey! Now, today's show is a close look at some of the people who make the whiskey industry tick, a deep dive into the unsung heroes, some villains, and the folks who've really helped shape the world of whiskey as we know it today, either by their insane talents or lack thereof. Which is a perfect segue into introducing my co-host today, laddies and lassies, give it up for the talents of Mr. Mitch Bouchard. You had to get that. You had to get that segue in there, mate, didn't you? <laughs> Backhanded compliment, mate. Backhanded compliment. Anyway, how things, man? <laughs> yeah, good, man. Good, man. I'm looking forward to this one. Um, yeah, I think this is, a, like you said, this is the first in our series where we're going to go down this road of being quite serious, which I know is... A little bit shocking for some people. You know, we even had to put down our glasses for a minute and do some homework uh, for this one. So that was pretty intense. That's pretty hard for you, Nicholas, as well, because I know you struggle with that, that concentrating thing, you know? I know. Um, but Adderall, please. Uh, I, I wouldn't say we're going to have some academic banter on this episode. I would go that far. But we're definitely going to dive into some of the depths of whiskey lore, maybe unearthing some tales around... Definitely around these unsung heroes who have been quietly rocking the whiskey boat. You know, and these guys um, that we're talking about, both in the past and the present within the whiskey industry, uh, we're going to be talking about people. We're also going to be talking about distilleries and these distilleries and people. They don't always make it to the spotlight, but they definitely should, in our opinion. Right, Nicholas? Ah, indeed. Uh, I mean, like you said, Mitch, we really had to put our thinking caps on and our very fetching tartan plaid. And let me tell you, like, deciphering through my scribbles of my malt-stained notes took a lot of work. Uh, but we're not just here to spill ink. We're here to spill a few secrets, the stories, uh, and really kind of bring some of these these uh, processes and maybe a dram or two to life, right? Yeah, man. What are you drinking today? Uh, nothing right now because it's nine o'clock in the morning. Uh, although, point is. Although <laughs> I was waiting for that one. <laughs> uh, I do have a little bit of whiskey tasting to do later this afternoon, and like when you when you hear me talking about some of the the heroes that I'm chatting about, like I was like pulling out some cast samples like at eight this morning and nosing through some of them. Actually, nosing through some Dalmores and stuff like that, uh, particularly because I'm talk going to talk about some kind of heroes in the sherry world. Um, what about yourself? Are nice. you actually having a dram at the moment? Um, do you know what? I was just looking back and thinking, like, what am I going to have? But it's it's just coming into the weekend here. I'm almost ready for a dram, but not quite. Are you um, doing a, so you I, doing I, a damp January? 
And do you know? Yeah, da- damp's damp's a good way of putting it, actually. Because uh, last <laughs> I know you're not last right. week, I, uh, I it's it's uh, dude, it's not on purpose as well. You know me. I don't. I don't. You've I don't never done anything on purpose. <laughs> Is that what you meant? Is that what you meant? You know me. <laughs> well, well, definitely. Yeah, definitely dry January. I don't go in for that on purpose. But last week I got a cold and it was a stinker, man. It, it hit me for knocked me for six, like. I went down to Edinburgh, uh, drove down there, did some stuff down there. And then just after that, I was just floored coming back up the road. Um, so for that reason, mate, I haven't really been drinking an awful lot. Um, I had a little dram last night, and I think it was the first time in a week and a half that I touched any booze. So can we mark that down as a record there? I think uh, that's probably the longest dry spell I've ever had, maybe in my life. Um, but yeah, I, it's been a fucking quiet week, mate. You know, January, just chilling out, not really getting up to much, yep. having a lot of laptop time, just getting a lot of planning done, which is not my jam at all. But I think you're the same as us, mate. We've been hit with a bucket load of snow here. So that's kind of hampered going out anywhere. I think we're up to about a foot right now of snow uh-huh. in Speyside, which is pretty insane to see. Yeah, but, um, that, that, that is. Actually, funny enough, I'm looking at my office window right now and the snow is falling. How is it? Children playing, having fun, you know, shaking Stevens all over again. Yeah, but yeah, the snow is falling. <laughs> uh, I, I think we're going to get between, I mean, maybe five, six, seven inches again today. Not, not, but cumulative snowfall over the next twenty-four hours. So that's pretty good. Um, yeah, man. Well, I, I'm looking forward to it. You know, you know when snow falls and you get excited about it, and then you're like, yeah, you go out in it. Um, it's still really nice. We were just out for a walk just now. It's still really crisp, and we actually yeah. walked right above the Dalyun Distillery, and the, it's a blue sky day here in space and it Cracking. just looks stunning looking over the mountains and everything yeah. um but i'm kind of getting over the snow now i'm like all right oh, really? you can go away yeah you're done nah, i'm done like, th- four days for me it's like vegas i just want to tap out you know <laughs> <laughs> talk about coughs you can tell i still got a little bit of a, a residual cold kicking through my chest at the moment but that's um i know what you mean but I've started going in another direction where it really doesn't bother me anymore. It used to be that point where when I was traveling all the time, it was such a inconvenience to have the snow. And yeah. all the flights would be delayed. The roads were a nightmare. Like it was really tough. Now I'm more like, you know what? I quite, quite enjoy it. I'm fully prepped for it. I keep my snow pants at the front door. Like I've got snow boots at the front door. Like there's like a big kind of rolled carpet that's out at the front door. So when you come in from the snow, you just kick your boots off there and, and that's it. I quite quite like that. So I think I think if you're prepared for it, but you know, and you, you don't care too much about what you look like. If you're trying to go out to a business meeting and you're dressed in like, you know, you yeah. met you're walking around with a suit and a pocket square and dapper dan usually. So trying to put a snow jacket on on top of that doesn't really do the do you justice. But uh, right. for myself dressed like a hobo. Uh, <laughs> Can I, can I just translate for all the listeners in the UK? When Nicholas said snow pants there, he actually meant to say snow trousers oh. um, since he's turned American. Oh, yeah. Snow pants, mate. Get your snow, snow pants, pants on. Oh, my gosh. You're <laughs> so funny. Yeah, yeah. My snow pants. Yeah, exactly. There you go. Right. Listen, before we get into this, uh, we got some housekeeping to do, right, Nicholas? Yep. Remember last week, listeners, we did a new section uh, on Guess the Distillery. Now, I know everyone's been waited, waiting on the answer with bated breath for this. It's, it's, you, I can feel the tension with our listeners as to what that distillery was last week. But <laughs> as promised, we did put the clues up on our Instagram page and we had a load of answers. So thank you so much for all those who made the effort to answer um, that uh, with, with all the clues. So a few people. People put in Bowmore, which was a good shout. We also had a few answers of Jura in there. Um, 
unfortunately, they were wrong. I'm not going to name and shame everyone, though, because that would just be, be a, a, a horrendous thing to do. But kudos to all those who wrote in with the right answer. And there was quite a lot of people who got this right. So who got it right? Well, we had Matt, a.k.a. The Drambler, wrote in with the right answer. Ewan from Glen Turret, shout out to my boy there, doing a great job uh, hosting at Glen Turret. Well done, Ewan. Uh, Paul, a.k.a. The Whiskey Share, got it right as well. Uh, funnily enough, Alistair Day got this right. And at this point, I'm going to say the answer because it was actually Rassi Distillery and Alistair owns Rassi Distillery. So Alistair, <laughs> as I said to you, if you'd got that wrong, I would have given you a bit of a slag in there, mate. So well done to, to you. Uh, Words of Whiskey got it right. Eric Letaire, Le, Le I think it's pronounced, uh, got it right as well. Ian Bruce and Ryan from Eight Doors Distillery all got the right answer of the Rassi Distillery. Absolutely. So for this week, Mitch, for all those budding whiskey geeks out there who love that little bit of mystery, here are some clues to guess our next uh, whiskey mystery distillery. So Ooh. this Highland distillery dates back to the 19th century. It has burnt down at least three times, and at least once of those instances was under very suspicious circumstances. And before being modernised, up until 1963, the entire site was powered by water wheels and a steam engine. So mm -hmm. those what are your clues. Answers on a postcard. What am I? What the Who am I? I? What's Who makes my name? a whiskey like this? Exactly. Who would I be? So there I you go. Mate, I thought I knew this one, but then... When I got to the when you got to the water wheels and steam engine, that kind of put me off a little Three. bit there. So, yeah, I'm gonna have to put my thinking cap on. Aye. Um, but yeah, excellent sleuthing opportunities there for everyone listening. Um, as always, we'll punch these up on Instagram on our stories. Get some feedback. Anyone gets it right, get a little shout out on the next show. But before we get into the unsung heroes, um. Let's take a, a moment, I think, to acknowledge the real-life unsung heroes of the whiskey world right now. Thanks, man. And I'm talking about... You. Thanks. Thanks. No, not me. I'm not talking about you, mate. <laughs> not talking about you. <laughs> no, I'm talking about all the tour guides out there, uh, the Coopers, the blending teams that assist the master blenders, teams working in production, the finance guys, the farmers that grow all the grains for Scotch whiskey and other whiskies around the world, the amazing hospitality uh, industry within bars, restaurants and hotels around the world, all the staff in whiskey shops, and last but not least, the sales and marketing guys. So love them or hate them, we need those guys. So little shout out out to all you guys that are working within whiskey right now that are the unsung heroes we totally appreciate what you guys are doing but i think for me you know the, the way when we did this right we looked at breaking this down into um heroes past and present and i'm gonna go with mine first nicholas if you don't mind go for it mine is a, a mutual friend of ours uh dennis mcbain who has been the coppersmith uh he's kind of semi-retired now at William Grant and Sons for uh, Balvenie. And Dennis started uh, the, the coppersmith role when he was just 16 years old. And a lot of people that have been to Balvenie would have met Dennis, amazing guy, some incredible stories, uh, you know, to, to start on this role when he was just 16 years old and still be at Balvenie and still have the passion for it is quite incredible. And I think, you know, he's 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 been recognized by by Balvenie on a load of occasions. So he kind of 
I suppose he's one of the sung, stroke unsung heroes when it comes to whiskey. But big shout out to Dennis, a good friend of ours and amazing gentleman. Very cool. Very cool indeed. So first up for me, Mitch, another gentleman that you'll probably know, Mr. Ronnie Cox. Now, this is really personal for me because Ronnie's probably one of the main reasons that I do what I do now. He is a legend in the whiskey industry. Most people will know him for his time at Berry Brothers and Rudd. He's been in the whiskey industry for almost 50 years now. So Ronnie Cox, Red Sox. He's seventh generation in the booze business and Scotch whiskey business. He cut his teeth uh, like old school, like way, way back in the day, going around like Latin America, where it was sketchy as all hell, trying to like promote different booze brands and things, not just in whiskey at that time, but like ended up, I think it, two occasions, I remember him telling a story, like in two occasions, he said a gun pointed at his head. Like, like that's wow. the absolute Wild West days. He worked for Distillers Company Limited and you know, was out there kind of promoting black and white and Buchanan's and all these kind of things, part of kind of Diageo's uh, stable uh, back out in the day. And then in the 80s, he kind of started to move um, into what would become uh, Berry Brothers and Rudd. Like he'd cut across a couple of things, like he was working with Guinness in the kind of late late 1980s and his distilleries kind of bought, sold and trade hands. He basically was the guy that went out there and brought Cutty Sark to the Americas and, and Latin America. And then, you know... He, when it was all sold out to Edmonton, he was like basically part of all these guys that kind of moved around and he basically took over Glenrothes. And he, most people who know Glenrothes as a whiskey and know that I am one of the biggest fans of Glenrothes as a whiskey company, know that Ronnie Cox was the face and, and the, just the absolute champion of, of that brand for so many years. He just embodied everything about it. He's an absolute raconteur, just real, the gentleman's gentleman. He's a massive champion of Keepers of the Quake and a champion of all Scotch whiskey. So he's heavily involved with, with Keepers as, as a master keeper. Um, and just just really is one of those guys that is a joy to sit next to, a wonderful storyteller, a champion of his own brand, but a champion of the industry. And just one of those great dudes. It's, uh, yeah, a, a complete and utter uh, inspiration to me as well to, to get into this business. And it, he's one of those guys, and we talk about this a lot on the show, Mitch, like the thing that we love about this industry is that people like Dennis as well, right? So as a coppersmith, yeah. you know, to have a coppersmith that makes that much of an impact on you is is, is unheard of. And, and, and similar, you know, most people would think, oh, it's a guy that walks into a room and talks about whiskey. But Ronnie just leaves an impression everywhere he goes and he's just a, a lovely human being. Agreed with that, mate. Very cool. For my next personality, I'm going to go into the past. And I suppose this personality is celebrated at Laphroaig, but not really as much within the Scotch whiskey industry. And it's Bessie Williamson. So Bessie was born in 1910. Uh, and a, she had a bit of a rocky start at the Glasgow University, uh, which then kind of led into a job in a restaurant. But she then went on holiday in 1934 to an island that we know very well called Isla. There she heard about a temporary vacancy at the Lefroy Distillery. Uh, so little did she know this would lead on to become her career and really kind of she would blossom within the whiskey world here. So at that point in time, it was a gentleman called Ian Hunter who was running the distillery and, and Bessie became the kind of right hand man, the linchpin of Lefroy under Ian's tenure. Uh, when he passed away in 1938, she then assumed this more significant role. And in 1944, she officially took the reins of Lefroig. And this was really the first time we see a female 
taken ownership and management of a distillery in Scotland within the 20th century. So as a leader, she really navigated Laphroaig through a lot of post-war changes and, and expansions as well. Her reputation got that well known that she was actually asked by the Scotch Whiskey Associ Association in the 1960s to go on tour in North America, sharing secrets of Scotch whiskey production. So on this trip, it led to her uh, meeting a gentleman called Wishart Campbell, who was a Canadian radio star, and that led to their marriage in 1961. So Bessie brought uh, Wishart back to Isla, and they continued their, well, he started their life there, but she <coughs> continued her career within Laphroaig. So I suppose when you go to Laphroaig, you hear about Bessie, and she wasn't just known as a businesswoman. She was really loved over there beyond just the distillery. Um, she led the Scottish Women's Rural Institute, uh, earn, earning her an order of St. John in 1963. She was also known as a person who really gave a lot of jobs to people on the island uh, to the point where she was kind of known just to be supporting the, the, the locals so much. They had, some of them had jobs that didn't really need to exist. Um, but in the long term, she ended up selling the distillery to Long John Distillers in the 60, 60s. She remained at the helm until her retirement in uh, in 72, uh, steering the, the distillery through a lot of challenging waters and, and you know, really pushing Laphroaig to, to what it is today. So absolute legend with an Isla. And I think it's also really important to, you know, we've, we've, we've talked about um, Helen Cummings on the show before. And I think Bessie's really cut from that lineage as well when it comes to this old school woman within whiskey that doesn't get talked about as much, which, uh, you know, as, as we all like to do within the industry now is really promote that side of the business as we should be because uh, it's not seen as this this male-dominated industry anymore. So we, we cheers right? to, to Bessie, amazing yeah. woman. What an amazing woman. I mean, yeah. like that role of things you were running off that match, I was like, holy heck, like, and she invented the cure for COVID-19. What about that? What an amazing pair. <laughs> like, let's give her the I mean, credit could, for that too. Dude, yeah, can you amazing. imagine like running a distillery on Isla at that time? At that time. That must, that's, must rock have been star. a tough gig. Yeah. Absolute rock star. So then, Mitch, if you want another person, this is a pretty controversial one. This is someone who I genuinely believe is a hero in our industry who would absolutely go unnoticed. And the reason uh, I chose this person is because he has influenced so many of the biggest single malt scotch whiskey brands specifically in his talent but unless you knew behind the scenes who this person was you would this name would never come up so the person i think is a bit of an unsung hero is mr antonio flores now antonio flores is the master winemaker master blender at gonzalez bs sherry house now this sherry house is the biggest provider of sherry casks into the Scotch whiskey industry for the best barrels. So think of Macallan, think of Dalmore, and uh, you know those just two, two right off the of the bat that people think of as big sherry bomb whiskies. They're buying their barrels from Gonzalez Bias, but Antonio Flores has been making the wines there for forty five years. He is literally the Richard Patterson of the sherry world. Like him and him and Dickie Patterson are like two peas in a pod. Uh, very very good friends and a long. I think they've been friends for thirty something years. Um, if not longer. This guy, Antonio, was actually born inside uh, the bodega 
So he was born on the floor of the sherry bodega. His mother gave birth to him inside one of uh, inside one of these sherry houses. His father worked in industry. He's only ever ever worked for Gonzalez Villas. So his entire life's work was dedicated to making some of the best sherries in the world. And and that was it. From the age of eleven, he was handed you know literally a, a, a chalk and 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 um, and and told look go wrong nose and taste these barrels see what you think's impressive you know start to score out some of these wines and this is what he's dedicated his life to the 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 reason he's my unsung hero is because of the quality of what he does we get some of the best barrels in the world coming into the scotch whiskey industry that shape some of those uh, iconic uh, single malt scotch whiskey brands so you know for those of you that have never tried sherry Go out and buy it. Go out and buy Gonzalez BS wines. They are absolutely breathtaking. Teal Pepe is probably the biggest known uh, Fino sherry, which isn't something that we, we particularly use a lot of in the in the Scotch whiskey industry. But their uh, Olorosos, their Amontillados, uh, their Palo Cortados are some of the best wines you'll ever get in your life and definitely well worth going out and finding. But that's what I thought uh, Antonio has, has brought to, to our game and definitely somebody that would fly under the radar unless his name is brought to light. I like that, mate. Very cool. And I also like the fact that I'm going to be going over to Spain to Jerez next month. So maybe we can get him on the podcast while I'm over there. 100%. Doesn't speak a lick of English, but he has a, a gentleman who follows him every single day side by side who is um, his translator. Because you can imagine everywhere he goes, people are asking him questions. So he's got somebody who literally follows him around and speaks and translates back and forth for him. Rock star. Yeah. Absolute rock star. Really, really cool dude. Actually, nice I, tell you, I, like that one. I tell you, you should speak to who who give you a, 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 a could probably set up that introduction for you is Daz, so he is still useful for some things. No, he's not. I just spoke to him the other day. Anyway, oh, moving okay. on. <laughs> but if anyone does have any good contacts over in Jerez, give me a shout because I will be going over there for about four or five days uh, towards the end of February. So looking forward to that. So. I want to move this on, take it away from personalities. There's some some amazing personalities that we've just mentioned there, but let's talk about distilleries, Nicholas. Now, for me, an un unsung hero of the whiskey industry when it comes to distilleries is probably one that a lot of people might not have heard about, which is Kennet Pans. So Kennet Pans is situated on the first Firth of Forth, uh, just by the Concarden Bridge on the Fife side. Now, I've actually done a video of this distillery and I did it back sort of during lockdown. Um, I went in there and it was a good friend of mine, Tom Jones, not the Welsh singer Tom Jones, other Tom Jones that I used to work <laughs> with in Diageo. Um, we went uh, we went went round there and um, we kind of, and it's amazing to see because it's, it's really kind of preserved um, back from the 1700s. And we did a video on it and the owners of the, the the, the building weren't too happy. So I had to take the video down. But anyway, that's a long story about me almost getting arrested. Um, but, <laughs> but this is, it really is a significant distillery when it comes to, I suppose, the commercial production of Scotch whiskey. So the story goes that the, 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 the original site was a salt plane that was run by monks. And the, the Steen family learned the art of distilling from these monks and then went on to build a distillery on the site there. So it actually dates back to 1720. We don't have an official date when the first bit of whiskey was made there. Uh, but we do believe, or we kind of know, I suppose, that it was the first distillery to produce on a commercial scale to the point that 
by 1770, the amount of tax that was being paid on this whiskey was more than the land tax on uh, without throughout Scotland at the time. So it was owned and run by the, the Steen family who eventually combined with the Hagues to become one of the powerhouses of, of whiskey making. But the Steens ran the distillery until 1825. Uh, at that point in time, they'd actually created another distillery just up the road. And it was one of the first distilleries to have its own railway track and steam uh, train running between the two distilleries. So the Steens were, were really clever in what they did. The location of this distillery was right on the water. So they built a pier and they actually uh, had a, a fleet of nine ships now, what was happening at this point in time was you could argue that it wasn't really whiskey that was being made by the def definition that we know of today. What the scenes were doing was they were actually shipping the liquid down to London where it was getting rectified and turned into gin. Now, there came a point where the distillers that were making gin down in London got a little bit pissed off with this. So the laws were changed that basically put the taxes on the, the the liquid that was coming down through the roof and essentially put the Steens out of business at Kennet Pants. So by 1788, they were in debt to a tune of £700,000. Now that equates to about £150 million in today's money. They became so desperate at this point, they even tried to bribe an excise officer and they got caught for it. So the Steens went into receivership at that the, the same year, 1788. Uh, it then fell silent for three years and was passed on to John Steen Jr., where it stayed in production until 1825. But this distillery was, was really significant in that it proved that Scotland could produce whiskey on this commercial scale and was the, the first one to really do so. So if you are around about that area in Scotland uh, by Kennet Pans, Clackmannanshire is where it's based. I highly recommend a little visit down to it. Um, I do have some amazing footage of actually going into the warehouses. Um, it's, it's this huge warehouse that still exists. It doesn't have a roof on it anymore. There's trees growing through it. It's unbelievable to see it. It is all kind of fenced off now, so it's, it's tricky to get into. Um, so if you do go down there, you can look at the site from the outside. But kind of really interesting spot to see when it comes to the history of Scotch whiskey distilling. So that's me. That's Kennet Pans. Nicholas, did you know about Kennet Pans? I did not. What a history lesson that was. Fantastic. Every day's a school day, my friend. Every day indeed. Yeah, that's super cool. Like, do you know what? See, when I was thinking about this, like, obviously you've, you've gone a real deeper dive into it. And when people hear my distillery of choice, they'll be like, well, especially in Scotland, you'll be like, of course we talk about that because in Scotland, this is quite a hailed distillery. But in the United States, every time I speak to people about this, silly folk are like, oh, I've never heard of it or I've seen it in the shelf and I don't buy it. And I'm like, this blows my mind. And the reason this distillery sticks out uh, so prominently with me, it's an Isla distillery. Uh, my brother, David, uh, this is one of his favorite drams. And it was my brother, David, that gave me a dram of this for the first time to try. And I fell in love with it. I just thought, holy shit, like I never had... Um, I don't, I don't really think I drank an awful lot of whiskey in my life at, up until this point anyway. You know, I'd probably had some some Glenfiddich and some 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 uh, Glenmorangie and things like that um, and, and maybe a few of the kind of lighter styles. But for me, this was Boonahabin. And Boonahabin Distillery, uh, especially in the States, Mitch, and I don't know if, if that was the same when you were living out here, but like most people 
don't really know about it. Like they don't, mm. they don't share the same passion that you, you maybe get for it. And I, I get it. Like it's a smaller distillery, but it's just, I just think it's a, a gem. Like I think, I actually don't think I've had a bad whiskey uh, that, that they've ever created that I've ever tasted. And that even includes some of the independent bottlings that I've tried just because I think the quality of the spirit that they're buying is so good anyway. Uh, so this is the distillery that dates back to 1881, uh, obviously on the Isle of Isla. Uh, Bunahaban probably is such a problem for people in the States because it's a difficult one to spell and to look at and then to pronounce, right? So I understand 100%. that as well. Um, and it's just one of these distilleries that it's, you know, it's known to be one of the milder styles. Like, so it's not traditionally a, a heavily peated whiskey. In fact, a lot of the whiskeys that they produce are non-peated. Um, but just this, you know, it's such a remote little distillery, even right up until um, 1993 was was how it was predominantly accessed through through ships. Like even there wasn't a road on the island up until the 1960s when they actually built a road to the distillery. But even then, up until 1993, they were still getting deliveries by ship because it was such a remote uh, location into that kind of harbour mouth. It is hands down my favourite distillery on the island. I just think it's such a beautiful location. It just feels so tranquil and um, it almost reminds me of the, the Scottish, you know the movie The Beach with Leonardo DiCaprio? It's, got that, it's like the Scottish version Scottish of that. Scottish version. Isn't it? Isn't it? Like when you think about it now, you're like, holy shit, like it's still got that kind of, like the, the little natural harbour, like it kind of claws around itself uh, and just protects, protects the distillery right on the waterfront. It's just one of my most favourite distilleries. It's a, an unsung hero, definitely. You can get independent bottlings on, like Duncan Taylor, uh, Douglas Lang, uh, the Batiki Whiskey Company, all do kind of independent bottling releases of it, and they're worth finding because they're all excellent. But Bunahaban's distillery-owned releases, I think the 12-year-old is probably one of the best 12-year-old whiskies on the market. Their 18-year-old is definitely one of the best bang for buck 18-year-old whiskies on the market. And then their higher-end stuff, they've got 25, 30. I was very fortunate enough to try their 40-year-old um, um, maybe a, a few years back. Um, and it's just it's just wonderful. Then they've got um, some peated whiskies as well. Tochuk was the, the last one that I tried. I don't know if you've had that. I've actually got a wee bottle of it sitting behind me as well. It's a nice wee dram if you like the kind of smokier yeah, stuff. I'm with you 100%. Definitely an un unsung hero. You'd like it even more now because their tasting room that they've recently built, and I think it, this the tasting room is probably like three, four years old, so I don't know if you've, you would have seen it since you've been no. back to Isla, but they built it like right on the waterfront, so you, they've got this amazing patio. And now, you know, before it would be like you could go onto the pier and then you'd see the, the water, but now you actually sit in the tasting room and take your dram outside. And last time I was there, wow. to your point, super chill day and the water was just coming in just washing <coughs> over the the stone beach there and it was just so tranquil it was almost like putting me to sleep a little bit like when i do this podcast with you you know fair enough understandable understandable <laughs> <laughs> well uh, but no I, I i agree with you on the pronunciation and i don't think they do themselves any favors with the way they name their expressions as well because no, you know it's, it's all they're Gaelic very traditional and, and, and very Gallic yeah, forward which is fine but, right I love that juice. It's fantastic. Ah, fantastic insane. Liquid, liquid. Yeah, yeah. yeah and really it's not like it's so underpriced out here in the US market. It's probably priced in the same that, that you would find it in the UK, but the cost of everything up here tends to be a little bit more expensive just because of all the shipping, freights, cost, taxes and everything else. But it's not. It still sits on the shelf at, you know, the 12-year-old you can pick up for under $40 a bottle, which is insane. And they've got a 12-year-old cast strength out now, which I don't know if is available in the US, but it's I've not here. seen it yet, but I'll keep my eyes peeled. 
and uh, yeah, maybe, yeah. maybe the fine folks there at Distel will like to to get on board and ship a few bottles out here. Hint, hint, nudge, nudge. <laughs> Mate, that's my jam, not yours. I know, I know, I know. <laughs> Mitch, it is time for joke of the week. Da, 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 yes. da, da, da. So, but he, here's so I'm going to shift the game a little bit on you because this is quite funny. So, um, for those of you that know me, know I love like a crappy dad joke. Um, so my business partners, Lauren and Rachel, sent me an, a joke a day calendar with dad jokes on them. And I'm just going to quick fire from the 1st of January to January 19th, a spitball of horrible, crappy dad jokes. So you ready? Right. <laughs> One after the other. Right. You should never tell someone that you love them on January 1st because it's only the first date. Did you hear about the houses that fell in love? It was a long distance relationship. <laughs> what do you call a factory that makes okay products? A satisfactory. My wife asked me to put ketchup down the shopping list. Now I can't read anything. I entered the World Kleptomaniac Championship Tournament. I took the gold, silver and bronze. I changed my iPod name to Titanic. Titanic. It's sinking now. <laughs> oh my God. Why did... <laughs> Why did Spider-Man's evil twin fail his driver's test? He was a bad parallel parker. Not too shabby. I'll let that one go. Uh, I struggle with Roman... Oh, I can't even read this one. I struggle with Roman numerals until I get to 159. Then it just clicks. Mm. Did you know books change colour after you finish them? They become red. What is the sleepiest fruit? The napricot. <laughs> I got a parking ticket. <laughs> I got a parking ticket yesterday, but I'm not sure why. The sign read, fine for parking. <laughs> what do they call a snowman's cell phone? A snowmobile. <laughs> oh, no, that's a chuckle. I have a pet newt called Tiny. I named him that because he's my newt. If you ever name your own business, try selling stoves. You'll offer a range of hot products. Oh. Oh. What, where does Sir Ian McKellen go to party? A nightclub. <laughs> so what if I don't know what apocalypse means? It's not the end of the world. Once upon a time, there was a king who was only 12 inches tall. He was a terrible king, but he made a great ruler. <laughs> For years, I've suspected that my wife has been adding soil to my garden. When I asked her about it, she just shrugged. The plot thickens. <laughs> and last but not least, what do you call an apology written in dots and lines? A remorse code. <laughs> what about that disaster? That was... I'm going to give you 60% on that, mate. Thanks. Thanks, And mate. then we're like, ah, but some of them are fucking good. Next like time around, I'll get you just one joke that'll be a cracker. But I quite like those for, for Spitfire Banter. Thanks to Lauren and Rachel. Those are giving me a chuckle every morning when I peel off my calendar a day. Time for a, time for a giggle. Well, guys, that brings us to the end of our semi-serious episode, our deep dive into whiskey, our unsung heroes. Hopefully you've enjoyed that. Hopefully you agree with that. And um, there's probably a load out there. We can, we can do maybe several episodes on this because there are so many unsung heroes within the whiskey world and we raise a glass to all of you. 
So Mitch, we've got some pretty fun stuff coming up, some good guests and some interesting topics. What have we got coming up next week? Right, next week we just recorded a banger of an episode from all you rugby fans out there. You might remember uh, Ruri Jackson and Chris Cusseter, both Scotland internationals. We sat down with both of them because they're they're now in the whiskey industry in different roles. Uh, Chris over in California and Ruri working for Glen Turret. So we sat down with them. We chat all things whiskey, all things rugby. So that's going to come out next week, mate. Uh, that's a good one. The Six Nations is about to drop. And also there's a Netflix series about to drop about the Six Nations as well. So, you know, it's like we planned it, mate. It is like we planned it. Look at us ahead of the curve. Right. Mm. Well, guys, thanks for tuning in. Be sure to follow us on Instagram. Be sure to like and subscribe to uh, Not Another Whiskey Podcast, wherever you're streaming your podcast for free. As always, your love allows us to continue to do this and bring this show to you ad-free for now and uh, for free for now. (laughs) On that (laughs) note, we shall see you next week. Uh, Bye. Thanks, guys. See you later. Bye.